Uh, hey, first off, it's warm up here. Uh, so could we give the worship team a hand? Because I don't know how they didn't pass out. And I don't know how I'm not going to pass out over the next 30 minutes. But you can go ahead and pray for your pastor. I want to thank you all for coming out this evening. Uh, very first Saturday evening service. And it's week three of uh, Church in the Open where we're going through the book of Acts. Uh, tonight, we are going to look at the very first Christian sermon ever preached. It was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read the whole thing to you on the front end of our time here together. So I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 39. It goes like this. It says, But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it'll be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days and they will prophesy. I'll display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You've revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he's poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And last verse, verse 39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is God's word. You know, it feels a little cooler already. That sun is right where I need it to be. Hallelujah. So what I want to focus on tonight 
is just the last four verses of what I read to you, verses 36, 37, 38, and 39, because what we're given in those verses is something that you'll actually be hard-pressed to find elsewhere in Scripture. These verses give us a really um, internal, behind-the-scenes look at how an individual enters into a saving relationship with Jesus. In other words, how you become a Christian. So that is the the question that I want to answer here tonight. How do you become a Christian? And according to these four verses we're going to look at, there's four answers to that question. And with that, I'll get right into my first idea. It's, It's first and foremost, number one, becoming a Christian requires an engagement of the mind. And I've been asked to repeat my points, so let me give that to you one more time. First and foremost, becoming a Christian requires an engagement of the mind. In Acts 2, verse 36, we read, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's Acts 2, verse 36. So first off, this word, therefore, means that this verse, Acts 2.36, is, is the conclusion, it's the summary, it's the bottom line of this very first Christian uh, sermon in history. And remember, Peter delivered this teaching to people uh, who, who were Jews. Jews had come from all over the ancient world to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And so being Jewish, uh, these were people who believed that the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, were the authoritative word of God. And so what Peter does in his teaching is he takes people who assume the authority of the Hebrew scriptures and he basically shows them how on the premise of their own belief system, they must believe that Jesus really is who he said that he was. And and he walks through this and he says, look at what David said in Psalm 16 and how he could not have possibly been talking about himself. And, And look at what David said in Psalm 110 when he says, the Lord, meaning God said to my Lord, but who on earth, if David is the king of Israel, who could he be referring to as his Lord? What, what human being could he possibly be talking about? And so what Peter is doing here is he's making this really brilliant case that the Hebrew scriptures prove that Jesus actually is the son of God. And, and so what I think is equally as important to see is what Peter is not doing in this teaching. First and foremost, he is not browbeating his audience and standing up on a podium in front of a group of people and saying, you're wrong and I'm right and I'm here to tell you about it. What he's doing is he's entering into their belief system and into their understanding of their own Old Testament and and he's showing them how on the premises of their own belief system, they have to believe that Jesus legitimately is the Christ. And and Peter appeals here not only to the Hebrew scriptures, but also uh, to historical evidence because he tells them in verse 32 that they were all eyewitnesses. That this idea that Jesus had been raised from the dead was not a story that they'd heard. It was actually a person that they had seen. And so what Peter is doing here is basically saying, and by the way, there are hundreds of people who you can go and have a conversation with right now who will all tell you that they have seen the resurrection personally. And so even if you don't want to see Jesus in your own Hebrew scriptures, you're going to need to deal with the fact that hundreds of people with nothing to gain and a whole lot to lose are all saying that they've seen the same thing with their own two eyes. And what Peter is doing in all of this is something that sounds very simple, but I think it's really important for us to highlight. First and foremost, he's appealing to their mind. And so the the point to drag from this is that Christianity does not in any way, shape, or form circumvent the mind in order to get to the heart. I I said this on week one of this series, but Christianity will never ask you to check your intellect at the door in order to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. 
Uh, real Christianity will, will never say, I, you know, I know it doesn't make a ton of sense, but just try not to think about it. You just got to kind of faith it out. Not a single one of the early church communicators of the gospel either spoke of or thought of Christianity in those terms. As a matter of fact, Christianity, before it even engages the heart, before it engages the feelings, it first is, is designed to engage the mind. It doesn't begin with saying, here's what you need in order to be happy. It begins by saying something has happened in history and you need to deal with it. You need to wrestle with it. You need to figure it out for yourself because something has happened that has changed the world forever. And so the first thing we see here is that becoming a Christian first and foremost requires an engagement of the mind because Christianity does appeal to the mind. And any version of Christianity that does not appeal to the mind is not real Christianity. That's the first thing that we see here. But it, camping out in verse 36, the second thing that we can see there that we learn about Christianity is that it's a belief system and a worldview that is primarily about grace. In other words, it's a salvation not by what you do, but by what Jesus has done for you. And so this brings us to our second idea. It's that secondly, becoming a Christian requires an understanding of grace. First and foremost, it requires an engagement of the mind, but secondly, it requires an understanding of grace. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, verse 36 in Peter's sermon really functions as the conclusion of the entire sermon. And as the conclusion, what Peter's doing is he's looking back on everything that he said, building up to that single point that he's trying to drive home to his hearers. But one of the most striking things about Peter's sermon when you zoom out from it is that he's going through the Old Testament and he's looking at prophecy from the book of Joel, and he's looking at Psalms from the pen of David, and he's, he says that they're all talking about Jesus. That the point of all of that, what it, was, what it was all, even if those authors didn't realize it at the time, what it was all always getting to and finding its fulfillment in was the person of Jesus. And so what you're seeing here, and it's something that you're gonna see as a key theme all throughout the sermons and the speeches in the book of Acts, is that the first Christian preachers and authors all read even the Old Testament Christocentrically. And that means simply that every time they picked up their Bible, whether it was Old or New Testament, they understood that everything they saw in the Bible was ultimately finding its fulfillment and pointing to the person of Jesus. And that until you understood that, you really didn't understand what you were reading. New Testament authors do this over and over again. For instance, Paul uh, really, really thought about and talked about Jesus as the true and better Adam because Adam failed his test in his garden, the Garden of Eden. And because Adam failed his test, death has come to all of us. But he said that, that Jesus was the true and better Adam because Jesus passed his test in his garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And now because of his success, just as death came to all through Adam, now life comes to all who will put their trust in Jesus. And Peter does the same thing. It's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying in this teaching that Jesus is the true and better David. He takes these things that David wrote and he says that David, whether he realized it or not, was really just pointing to the ultimate king that would always sit on the throne of God's people and never have a moral failing like David did. That, he, that, that David was basically saying that Jesus is the true and better version of himself. And the most famous event during David's lifetime was when he risked his life to stand before a giant named Goliath on behalf of his people. And in killing that giant, what that meant is that even though no one else in all Israel so much as had the courage to pick up a spear, that when David killed Goliath, his victory became their victory, though they'd done nothing to accomplish it themselves. And so Jesus is the true and better David because he didn't just kill a giant man, he killed the giants of sin and the grave itself. 
And he did so not, not at the risk of his own life, but at the cost of his own life. And his victory, though we did absolutely nothing to contribute to it at all in and of our own power, it becomes our victory by grace through faith in his name. And not only did New, New Testament authors do this with Jesus, but Jesus himself did this when he was here. Jesus, during his time here, referred to himself as a greater Jonah. He said that in him, something greater than Jonah had arrived. And if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, there's this one particular scene where, where God was angry. And there was this, this terrifying, powerful storm at sea. And so Jonah actually needed to be thrown into that storm to satisfy the wrath of God so that the other sailors on that boat could have peace and be saved. And what Jesus was saying when he claimed to be a greater Jonah was he was saying that he came to do what Jonah did on a cosmic scale, that, that he came to be thrown into the ultimate storm of God's wrath on behalf of all of humanity and his destruction would lead to our salvation. And so the point that I'm driving at in, in, in all this and the application for us today is that the Bible has a whole lot of things in it, commands and rules and laws and regulations about the way that we should live our lives, but it's really easy to miss the forest for the trees. And it's really easy to approach the word of God as though it's a book that's basically telling us what we need to do in order to live a good life and be accepted by God. But the overarching painful reality that scripture leaves us with is that nobody could live a good enough life to satisfy a holy God. And it's into that reality that Jesus has lived the perfect life that we should have lived but could have never lived. He died the death that we should have died and he did so to take the punishment for our sin. And it's that message, this thing that we call the gospel, that really is the central message of absolutely everything we see in scripture. And so actually, it's entirely appropriate to, to say that, that you really don't understand anything in scripture, any, any character story, any parable, any major theme, any of it, until you understand how it brings you to the feet of Jesus crucified for you on a cross at a place called Calvary, because everything in this book finds its fulfillment in him. And so it's not basically about you and I, it's about him. It's not about what we have to do to save ourselves, it's about what Jesus has done to save us. And until you get that, you might be a lot of things, you're just not a Christian. But once that idea of a salvation purchased for you and offered to you purely by grace, once that begins to click for you, then you're on your way. And so the first things that, that, that we see just in verse 36 here is that first off, becoming a Christian requires an engagement of the mind. Secondly, it requires an understanding of grace. But in and of, in and of themselves, those two things, as necessary as they are, they're insufficient in and of themselves. Because what, what scripture is clear is that there's, there needs to be, after the mind is engaged, after we understand what this message is really about, there needs to be something that happens within our hearts. And so this leads us to our third idea today. It's thirdly, that becoming a Christian requires a piercing of the heart. One more time, becoming a Christian requires a piercing of the heart. In, uh, in, in chapter two, verse 37, we read how, how people responded to the words of Peter that day, almost 2,000 years ago. It says, when they heard this, they came under deep conviction and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Now, when you look at this phrase in the Greek, they came under deep conviction, that, that phrase is literally translated, they were pierced to the heart. And when the Bible talks about being pierced to the heart, what, it, what it's telling us here is that the people who heard P 
Peter's sermon that day, almost 2,000 years ago, they experienced such a deep wounding. This, was not a, this is not a surface level thing. This was not something that they could kind of distract themselves later, uh, maybe forget about it in a, day, in a day or two. What happened to them that day when they heard this message is they experienced a deep wounding, a deep rending in the center of their being that produced in them a profound sorrow. Now, when I read that, the first question I have is, is what, did, what did Peter say that had that effect on these people? And what you have to remember is what these people were hearing for the first time that Peter very painstakingly walked them through is that they were responsible for the death of the Son of God. He tells them in verse 23 that the crucifixion, it, it might've all happened according to God's foreordained plan. It's not like, you know, God was caught off guard by it. He knew that this was happening. This was always plan A for him. And yet Peter tells them that they used lawless people, the Roman government, to nail to a cross and murder in the most humiliating way, God's own son. And when they heard that, when they came to understand that, is when they experienced this piercing in their heart that produced in them such a deep sorrow. But I, I want you to consider something. The day of Pentecost, the day that, that Peter preached this sermon was about seven weeks after the crucifixion took place, 50 days. And during Pentecost, Jerusalem was alive with hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Jews from all over the ancient world, specifically the ancient Roman empire who had come to Jerusalem to visit. And so you, you can kind of picture what that place was like as far as a, basically a metropolitan nightmare is what it boiled down to. And when you consider the fact that hundreds of thousands, of, maybe millions of people were in and out, coming and going in Jerusalem, you realize it's, it's almost impossible to believe that the people who were listening to Peter here on the day of Pentecost were the same people who were actually physically present for the crucifixion some 50 days earlier, chanting, crucify him, crucify Jesus. It's almost impossible to believe that, that the same people at the crucifixion were actually within earshot of Peter's words that day. And yet scripture tells us that they were still pierced to the heart as though they were. And so here's what, here's what this is showing us. Here's what this is designed to show us. Here's what this means to be a Christian. You know that you are on your way to entering into a saving relationship with Jesus when your sin is personal, when your sin becomes personal to you. All right, there, there is a, a world of difference between a mindset that says, you know, everybody makes mistakes, nobody's perfect, and I'm no exception to that. There's a world of difference between that mindset and, and a mindset in which your sin is deeply personal to you, and you understand that it is against a, a personal God. And that's what was happening in Peter's hearers about 2,000 years ago. And as I, was, as I was sitting on this idea and kind of putting this teaching together, this was really... This is really powerful for me because I realized, and I didn't know it at the time, but, but, but I've realized that this is exactly how God operated with me when he got a hold of my life. Right, I don't remember the last time that I had the chance to share my testimony with you. I'll kind of give you the cliff notes. But despite being raised in Christianity uh, all my life, there was never a time when I was not in the immediate vicinity of Christian teaching. Despite all that, it really wasn't until after high school that, that the Christian faith became my faith. I remember I, I was 19 years old and, um, and I'd become really good friends with this guy named, uh, named Chris. And he had really similar life experiences uh, to mine. He was raised in the Christian faith. He had a lot of those emotional encounters that people would look at and say, you know, that's what it's supposed to look like. That sort of authenticates your faith. But by the time that Chris and I had crossed paths, he had really walked away from the faith altogether. 
and he had kind of dismissed that as, as a room full of emotion. He was really dealt a rough hand in life, and I think some of that kind of caused him to be bitter against the idea of God at all. And so by the time that our paths crossed and we became friends, he was a professing atheist. But one of the things that made Chris so unique was that he had, being raised in the faith, he had a really, really solid grasp of scripture. He actually had a better grasp of it than I did which was an unfortunate thing for me at the time because that meant that, that he had a good enough grasp of scripture to, to point out all the hypocrisy that was evident in my life that I, I knew was there, I just didn't wanna face. And so I'll, I'll never forget this as long as I live. I remember sitting on the edge of my bed on the phone with Chris at my dad's house, 19 years of age. I love being able to say this next phrase to you. I can confidently say, an atheist preached me the sermon that changed my life. I remember uh, we were on the phone for, for a while. I mean, it could have been hours. And we went round and round, and I was trying just as hard as I could to justify myself and the life that I was living and why that was okay and it didn't matter. And I had a scripture verse to take out of context, you know, every step of the way. And Chris had an answer for everything that I said. And so we kind of sparred for a while, but finally at one point in the conversation, he just bottom-lined everything for me. And, and, uh, and he said, in reference to the faith that I claimed was so important to me, and yet the life that I was living that so obviously denounced that, he simply said, in reference to the life I was living, he said, listen, Ryan, if God means that much to you, if God really means that much to you, then you'll give it up. And that statement left me with nowhere to hide. And what that left me with on the tail end of that conversation when I hung up that night, had a little clamshell cell phone. Where did those go? Never gonna see one of those again hung that thing up, and, and I remember for the first time in my life knowing I could either for the first time in my life decide that a relationship with God really actually meant nothing to me, or I could decide for the first time in my life that this faith that I'd heard about would finally be by my faith. Now, I, I think I've shared at least parts of that story before, and so maybe you've heard part of that before, but, but one thing that I don't think I've actually ever shared with, with you all as, as my church family is what that led to. Because just a few evenings after that, it was just a few nights later, I found myself in, in a worship service on a Friday night. And uh, I don't remember what the message was about that night. I don't remember um, what songs were played that night. Uh, all, I, all I remember is that the environment was really dark and it was really loud, which I was really grateful for because I did not want anybody to see or hear from me that evening. Because that evening, I did not have an encounter with God. I had an encounter with my heavenly father for what I believe may have been the first time in my life. And I remember sitting in worship and you could use all the same words to describe me on that Friday evening when I was 19 years old, that I came under deep conviction and I was pierced in my heart and I cried about as hard as I have ever cried. And I remember uh, just talking to God out of the overflow of that emotion. And, uh, and the only thing that I could think to do and maybe, maybe this is gonna sound strange to you, but the only thing that I could think to do was just apologize to him. And so that's what I did. And I'll tell you exactly what I said. That evening, I apologized to God for ever thinking that anything other than a relationship with him could satisfy me. And what's wild is, you know, being a part of the church my whole life, being in Christian school my whole life, I don't remember ever being taught what a prayer of repentance should sound like. So that night, it, it wasn't like I had something memorized that I knew, like a, in a catechism style thing, I was supposed to deliver to God from memory. When I look back on my posture before God that night, just a mess in a puddle of tears in, in, in a, at a table is what I was sitting at. 
when I reflect back on that, the only way that I could describe my interaction with God is, is, is that of a little kid who understood how his actions had hurt his dad. And I came to God and that's how I approached him. It, it, was, it was almost like saying, dad, I'm sorry that I hurt you. And I just want to come home. That's what that was. And so I say all that to say that what happened to me that evening is my sin went from this abstract idea to something that was deeply personal to me. See, there's, there's a world of difference between knowing you've broken God's rules and knowing you've broken his heart. And in my, in my seven, seven plus years now as a pastor, one thing that I have seen is just rampant in people is that so many people have, have the hardest time really viewing God as a father. And instead, so many people have a tendency to view him only as a judge. And as far as I can tell, that is the number one roadblock to spiritual growth and development in an individual's life. That, that, that at the end of the day, it doesn't boil down to lack of willpower or lack of uh, self-control or the sin that so easily besets you. What it all boils down to, I really do believe, is just the way that you view God. Because if you go through life and you view God only as a judge, only as a lawgiver, and you carry with yourself this mindset that says, well, if I break his rules, then he's gonna get me. He's not gonna answer my prayer. He's gonna cause me to be found out. Then when you sin, having that view of God and that mindset, when you sin, your sin will produce, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, your sin will produce a, a, a measure of guilt and shame and unrest in your soul. And for, for periods of time throughout your life, that might be enough for you to temporarily modify your behavior through sheer willpower, simply because you don't like feeling that way. You don't like the way your sin makes you feel and you don't wanna suffer the consequences that so often accompany sin. But what that can never ever lead to is lasting inside out change because you're relying on your own willpower. You're beating on your will from outside. And what'll happen is as soon as those bad feelings are gone and the fear of consequences is gone, then your repentance is gone with it and you're back living this kind of hamster wheel lifestyle, then I think a lot of us could, if we got honest with ourselves, we could say, that's been us. Maybe more than we're even willing to admit. I know I can say that. But when you begin to view God as more than just a judge, and you begin to actually see him as a father, as your heavenly father, and, and you understand that in sinning, you haven't just broken his rules, you've actually broken his heart. You've actually broken the heart of the one to whom you owe everything, the one who has, gave you, has given you everything. When your sin becomes deeply personal to you, that's when you experience what these people experienced here. That's when you come under a deep conviction that even if you wanted to, you couldn't get out from under it. That's when your heart is pierced and that's where real change, real lasting change is born. So the third idea I wanted to leave you with is that becoming a Christian requires a piercing of the heart. But, but maybe this will surprise you. Even that is not an end in and of itself. That, that, that being pierced in your heart out of this awareness of what your sin has done to God, that is, that's, that's actually, it's just meant to lead to the fourth and final aspect of what it means to become a Christian recorded here in this story for us. And this is gonna be our last idea. It's that becoming a Christian requires, fourthly and finally, a surrender of the will. Becoming a Christian requires a surrender of of the will. See, in response to being pierced in their hearts that day, scripture tells us that these people didn't just stand there being really sad. 
what that led to is them asking a question. The first question out of their mouths, it's almost like it just emanated from them because of what God was doing in their life. They asked Peter, what must we do? And, and the, the fact that they're asking a question like that betrays the fact that there was a complete surrender of their will, that they were willing to, they were laying, willing to lay hold of anything or let go of anything in, in order to enter into a relationship with this God and be made right with this God that they just found out died so that they could live. And in response to that question, what are we supposed to do about what we just heard? Peter gives them four things. He points to four things. And the first thing, not surprisingly, that Peter says is, is repent. And what that word literally means in the Greek, it's simple. It just means to change the mind. Because these people had abided by the Old Testament law their whole lives. There wasn't a lot of rampant sin that they needed to stop doing in their lives. What primarily needed to happen in their life, what needs to happen in all our lives is that we change our mind about who Jesus is and understand that he's not just a wise teacher. He's not just the founder of, of, of another religion to be added to the pile. He's not just this rabbi that was really inspirational. He actually is the son of God. He actually is our Lord and we need him to be our savior so that we can receive forgiveness of sins. So the first thing Peter says is repent. The second thing he says is to get baptized, which was a public way, not only of identifying with Jesus personally, but also of identifying with the community of Jesus followers corporately. This is a command for believers in Acts and it's a command for all believers throughout time and space that when you give your life to Jesus, you profess that faith through the act of baptism publicly. The third thing Peter talks about here is getting a new source of power, the promise of the Holy Spirit coming into your life and transforming you in ways that you could never transform yourself, which happens the moment that you give your life to Jesus. But the last thing that Peter points to here, I think is, is, is it probably sounds strange to us 2,000 years removed from this text, so I wanted to read it to you. And this is gonna be the last thing that I read to you today. In verse 39, after Peter talks about repentance, and getting baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 39, he says, for the promise, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And what that is, that, that's Peter preparing these Jewish followers of Jesus for what it's gonna be like to be a part of God's family. And what he's saying is, when you get into God's family, you're gonna realize something you're gonna realize that those Gentiles, the people that you have called far off and considered far off, this promise that God now extends to you, it, it's not meant to dead end on you, it's for them as well. And so this is Peter saying that those, all those people that you've been taught to avoid your whole life, all those people that you've looked down on as these unclean dogs, those people are gonna be your brothers and your sisters by grace through faith in the same risen son of God. And so what that means for us today, what this shows us is that a huge part of surrendering to Jesus means allowing the gospel of grace to transform you, to humble you, to deal with all of your prejudices, to transform not just your relationship with God, but your relationship with all of the people that God places in your life. And in other words, it's about allowing the gospel to completely renovate your life. That from the moment you give your life to Jesus, from that moment out, it's not about you anymore. It's about dedicating your life to whatever Jesus, the risen son of God, desires to do in and through you. And what we see through the book of Acts, and we're gonna see it page after page throughout this series, is that if there's one thing that Jesus desires to do in this world, it's reach lost people. Because this promise is not just for us, it's for them. And so we've answered our question today. I set out to, to, to answer the question, how do you become a Christian? There's four things. Becoming a Christian requires an engagement of the mind. It requires an understanding of grace. It requires a piercing of the heart. 
and it requires a surrender of the will. And when you have those four things, what you have is a saving relationship with the Son of God that according to Scripture, nothing can ever take away from you. Now, you've arrived at the end today. What I wanted to do to close while the worship team comes back is uh, just share a story with you that I heard this week that was really moving to me and I hope it means something to you. It's about a man named George Whitfield who was an 18th century Anglican priest in Britain. George Whitfield um, was so captured with the gospel that all he wanted was for somebody else to hear it. And he wanted to be the mouthpiece through whom that gospel would go forth. And his job was to preach in church on Sundays, but he was frustrated and he was dying on the vine because people weren't showing up to church. And so George Whitfield came up with what was really the most radical idea that anybody had even dreamed of for hundreds of years in Britain. He decided that he was going to go outside and preach. And if people weren't going to come to him, then he was going to take the gospel to them. And he was doing that long before it was cool, long before anybody else had that idea. And so he lived in a place called Bristol, England, and he knew that on the outskirts of Bristol, in a place called Kingswood, there were these coal mines. And the mines were terrible places. I mean, being, being a coal miner in the 18th century me- meant that you were probably going to die in your 40s. And prior to that moment, you were going to live a miserable life every step of the way. You were probably going to contract black lung. Socially, they were looked down on as pariahs and sinners and, and outcasts and not welcome around polite society and all that. And so you can imagine the shock that they experienced when one night they came up out of the mines. And I can get emotional thinking about this picture. You can imagine the shock on their faces when they came up out of the mines one night and they saw George Whitfield standing there. This Anglican, this Anglican priest in full clerical garb probably had his powdered wig on and he's standing there with arms open and he says, would you come here? I'd love to preach to you. I'd love to share the gospel with you. And they were completely blown away that, some, that an Oxford graduate, man of the cloth, high society kind of individual would want anything to do with them. And so they came up and they gathered around and, and Whitfield preached the gospel, the same gospel that I just delivered to you today, the same gospel that Peter delivered to these people 2,000 years ago. And there were eyewitnesses there that day that recorded what happened because even then they knew that this was a historical moment. And history would go on to show what, is that it was through outdoor preaching just like that that the gospel would sweep across Britain, it would transform the culture in this movement that we now refer to looking back as the Great Awakening. But according to the eyewitnesses that day, the most memorable part of what happened was something that literally showed up on the faces of the coal miners. They said that as George Whitfield preached, one after the other, these white lines started showing up on the faces of the coal miners. And that's because eyewitnesses said that as they came up out of the mines, their faces were absolutely black with coal dust. But as they heard this man share a story that they'd never heard before about what God had done for them, their tears ran down their cheeks and created what they called little white gutters, one after the other after the other. And it's because their hearts were pierced. It's because they understood what their sin had done to God and they understood what that same God had done for them in Jesus to deal with that sin. And so they were pierced. Now, in, in hearing that story, you may not be the most emotional person in the world. You know, you might not have an experience just like that. You might not have an experience like I had on a Friday night when I was 19 years old. But whether or not it, it, it happens on your cheeks or only in your heart, that's what it looks like. And whether you're joining me here on this field or joining me through a screen, I just hope that whoever you are and wherever you're coming from, that you live to have an experience like that with your heavenly father. Because I'm telling you, it'll transform you in ways you would not imagine. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us.
Father God, I, I just want to thank you for this message called the gospel that is so powerful that it can engage the mind and it can pierce the heart and it can cause the will to surrender to you where real life can be found. Father, and I would ask, it's simply because I know this is so pleasing to you, that we would be a community of people who are, who are marked by those things in our lives, that with progressive depth and in an ongoing sense, our minds would be engaged by your truth. We would come to deeper understanding of what grace is. Our hearts would be pierced and we would surrender our wills in deeper, more meaningful ways to you, God. And if there's a single person, I know I, there's gotta be, God. But for, for anybody listening to this right now, either on this field or through a screen, Father, I, I just wanna ask you that the same thing that happened in the lives of Peter's hearers 2,000 years ago would happen in those individuals' lives right now that their mind would be engaged, that they would understand your gospel of grace, that their heart would be pierced and that they would surrender their will to your son Jesus so that they could find life and life abundantly by grace through faith in his name. It's in the holy name of the risen son of God we ask this. Amen.